you know, I started doing this thing called drug and gang eradication. I don't talk much about it, but it's actually in my book. And what I would do is I'd go into apartment complexes and I would uh, identify the distributors since I used to be one because I know how it works. And I would knock on their door, you know, hello, it's me, Scott. Who is it? Scott, I'm the uh, working for the management company. What do you want? I said, uh, I'd like to talk to you for a second. The guy would come out and I go, look, you have to stop selling crack. He goes, what? I said, you got you to gotta stop selling drugs here. He goes, who are you? I said, I work for the management company. And the management company is, uh, you know, was, was hired me because the bank wants to get paid. And right now, all of the tenants here are consuming your product and they're not paying their rent. He goes, you? I said, true, true story, Sean. And I'm looking this guy in the eye, you know, and you can hear some in the back room, that clicking sound, you know, of a shotgun getting loaded. And he says, are you crazy? I said, no, I told you I'm working for the management company and I'm here to ask you to please stop selling drugs. Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a longtime methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. What's up, everybody? Thanks for stopping by the show. I'm your host, Sean Dustin. This is your first time listening. Welcome. Uh, If you're returning, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. This show, well, it started out as uh, bottoms and life struggles and how my guests would get through it. And in between was a little bit of lighter content. And it still is. Um, but there, what I've added into it is, you know, stuff that interests me and causes that I'm passionate about, like criminal justice reform, prison reform, because that's the community that I came from and that I'd like to serve. Uh, so if, uh, you know, you're getting something out of this or you're enjoying this show, uh, do me a favor right now, hit that subscribe button. That way it helps the show. That puts us in a higher ranking category. The more subscribes you get, the uh, the higher up you are in the uh, ranking charts. So, I mean, not a whole lot going on. It is uh, the 28th of September. This uh, year is moving by very fast. So, yeah, I'm uh, in this episode, I'm talking to Scott Silverman. And he is a speaker, a coach, and an author, an expert in dealing with crisis and behavior health. Uh, he's a crisis coach, uh, an interventionist, and it was a great conversation. I we actually it talked about a lot of different stuff from recidivism because he is he actually started his own nonprofit uh, probably twenty years ago and and. Uh, you know, for reentry, one of the first one, well, not probably not the first one, but I mean, 
this was long, you know, 20 years ago. So, I mean, he's kind of, you know, been in the game for, for a while and I'm just now starting to get into it. So it was really good to make that connection and be able to talk to Scott about, you know, the, the nonprofit that he did and then, you know, discussing a little bit about what I'm trying to do. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was a great conversation that kind of, you know, went a couple of different directions, but for the most part, oh, he had a really, really interesting story, um, that ties into the, uh, the intro, uh, you know, the, the audio clip in the beginning. Um, that's an, that's a, that's kind of an interesting career. I never would have thought that, uh, you know, a, a city would, would hire somebody to do that, but I guess so. And he was one of them. So it was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I don't have, I don't have a whole lot other, much other than that. I might release one more this, uh, month, depending on how much this one takes up as far as like megabytes on my, uh, on my account. So let's get to the show. What's up? This is the nowhere to go, but up podcast and I'm your host, Sean Dustin, uh, First of all, let's start with uh, checking out the true crime documentary series, The Con. What really happened to cause the 2008 financial crisis is now available in virtual cinemas. The first episode is free, so head on over to www.thecon.tv. Uh, if you like what I'm doing and you want to help support it, you can also go over to Patreon. And I'm currently uh, loading it up with uh, subscriber-only content, which is, you know, my my interviews will go on there first before they hit uh, anywhere else. Uh, Commercial-free, ad-free, and uh, announcement-free, and actually edit edit unedited as well. So uh, the only thing I do to it is I change the levels to make them acceptable for uh, anything that you listen to them through. And other than that, that's it. I don't edit out anything else. So that's uh, available there. And if you don't want to be a subscriber to that, you can also go over to Venmo and uh, PayPal and just uh, help support the show there. And you can also get there through going through my uh, link tree, which will be available in the uh, description and all the ways that connect to the show, plus direct uh, direct play links and direct links to all of my uh, links will be there. Today I am talking with... Uh, Steve or Scott Silverman. Sorry about that, brother. Uh, Scott Silverman, and he is a crisis coach and an intervention specialist, uh, from Southern California. Uh, he's also the founder of Second Chance, uh, and that's a Second Chance, I believe, is a nonprofit that he created. Um, to help at risk, uh, teens and adults that were coming out of incarceration. So it was more of like a, uh, reentry program. Uh, so hi, Steve. How are you? You can call me Scott. It's okay. A lot or of Scott, call me Scott. Scott. Sorry. It's Sorry, right, Scott. Man. It's okay. It's your show. And as you said earlier, you don't change anything. So, you know, nothing like a live show. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Sean, it's good to be here and, uh, you know, excited to, uh, to have a conversation with you and, and talk about uh, what's relevant, what's happening, what's going on. And, you know, here in California, we've got one of the, you know, carceration nation. That's what they call uh, California. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, Biden's new pick is just going to enforce that mass car- mass incarceration even more. Well, you know, I, I think, well, obviously, as, as the uh, old AG, but I think that, look, I think the prison system is as what was it? The secretary correctionss for California 
uh, most recently stated, and I think the the national corrections people finally, you know, finally have said out loud and publicly, you know, our system doesn't work for rehab. And, you know, since the majority of the people that are, you know, incarcerated are around some sort of substance abuse or, you know, distribution of illicit or illegal substances, um, clearly, you know, my attitude is, you, you know, you go into a, I see that now in, in rehab business that I'm in, people go into a treatment center with a Oxycontin addiction and they come out addicted to heroin, you know, how'd that happen? <laughs> so, you know, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting world we're living in now and, I just got called by the local newspaper here in San Diego yesterday. I'm going to be writing an op-ed because, you know, we spoke five months ago, and they want to know how are things going since people have been, you know, sheltering in place and, uh, you know, stuck at home. And it's it's bad. It's really bad. Overdosing is increasing. Suicide's up. Domestic violence up. Abuse is up. You know, um, the alcohol sales are up dramatically. And, you know, you don't have to leave your house. There's an easy way to get somebody to deliver everything you want. And, you know, now that marijuana is legal in California, you know, there are those services that we all know about that drive people around that are delivering marijuana. So it is a scary time because people are truly self-medicating at a rate now that we haven't seen before uh, just because um, they can. And, you know, the government's sending people money. Hopefully they're going to renew that because we know our community needs it. And uh, it's a very, very unique time. And I think we're going to see people uh, expire before they even get a chance to go to court and, and be arrested and go to court and go to jail anymore. So it's just, it's happening, the overdose rate. Fentanyl overdoses, for example, in San Diego are up 32%. And, and that's just not an opinion. That's a Sandag, San Diego organization of governments. They did a study. And this was over, this was last year over the year before. And they haven't even started to count yet this year, 2020. So we know it's going to be, um, it's got to be, it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse. 72,000 people expired last year in our country. Again, a, a number similar to more people that died in Vietnam. So we are certainly on a roll as a country, no doubt about it. And uh, unfortunately, not in a real positive way when it comes to self-medication. No, yeah, I mean, I I, I agree with you 100% on that. And uh, it, it is going to get worse, especially when we get closer to, all of these benefits or these, uh, whatever you want to call it that the government's handing out, uh, when all of these things expire at the, at the final end of it and these moratoriums are, are lifted and there's no more relief, um, people are going to start getting evicted because if they couldn't pay for it then, how are they going to pay for it now? And they're not working. You know, I mean, you know, and we're, we're in San Diego. I mean, the average price of a, of a home, on, uh, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier offline, my wife's in real estate. So real estate is up, kind of like the stock market now, which is interesting, but they haven't been making new homes for a while. So there's only so much land. And to your point, the, the people are going to go right from subsidized rental, in, you know, uh, unit into homelessness. And you know, we already have in San Diego, one of the worst homeless problems, uh, you know, in, in the country. And California has got something like 50% of the homelessness. You know, we haven't been on the air five minutes. We're talking about incarceration, drug addiction, and overdosing, and homelessness. This is so exciting. I mean, we, yeah. we're going we're gonna to have to throw some happiness somewhere into this podcast because – I'm, I, you know, I, I'm sober a long time now, but I, I have found that I'm, I'm grateful that I have a lot of elastic in the waist of my shorts that I'm wearing every day at home. And I don't have to be fully on camera anymore because not much fits anymore. But I understand other people have been having it. Yesterday, I had a pizza. I went out for the out for the first time in like four weeks to go pick up a pizza at my favorite Italian restaurant. And I my wife and I ate the whole thing yesterday. It was great. Yeah, yeah. It was 
COVID 25, man. I, well, actually, I think I'm around COVID 30 right now. Uh, you know, yeah. that, that extra, that extra little bit, man. Uh, you know, it, it definitely got to me, but I mean, a lot of that was my fault too. You know, I was doing a lot of interviews in the beginning of this and I mean, I'm, I'm right by the water. So, I mean, I literally don't have anything to do here except for, you know, work on my show and go hang out and take my dog to the uh, beach every, every three days, you know? So, and, and plus I cook. So, and I'm a good cook and I like to eat what I, what I make. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a great way to have it set up. Yeah, I love yeah, cooking this, as well. This is not a serving size to me. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about your, uh, about your past and, and how you got to where you were. Um, you know, you struggled as an addict, uh, with methamphetamine yourself and probably some other substances. So, uh, what, how how was that and uh how did you get to where you are now and 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 throw in a little bit of uh you know how you got to uh build that foundation because that's another thing that we share i'm currently in the process of trying to uh start a nonprofit for exactly that same thing for people that are reentering uh society you know they definitely don't get enough help while they're in prison and they're way behind the starting line when they get out so you know, uh, sometimes people used to refer to them as the community throwaways. Yeah, there's there's no, you know, and I ran a nonprofit, as you mentioned, um, for 18 years and specialized in hardest, the hardest to serve. That was my challenge. People who had multiple barriers, people who had challenges, and then grew into working with people coming out of jail and prison because it was a, to me, it was an attractive um, client because nobody wanted to serve them. So it's not like I was sitting in the room with, you know, 100 different social service providers and having to compete. Uh, nobody wanted the customer. There was too many barriers, too many things they needed. But I found that people who suffered from, um, you know, institutional thinking and multiple years of incarceration had an interesting motivation level and some really attractive skill sets. And as a social entrepreneur, I tapped into all that. So to answer your question, I grew up in San Diego, uh, family of six, four kids. My family had a small business when I was younger and I worked in it almost my whole life, you know, so I had, I had opportunity to do things a lot of people couldn't do. But on the other hand, I also worked holidays, Easter, summer weekends, and that was kind of what I did. And I just found alcohol and it, it self-medication became uh, an easy transition for me, and I didn't really realize until I crashed and burned at 30 that I actually had a problem. I mean, I, I felt, and I, I was one of those smart people. People say, well, you know, the way to know is to stop. And so I stopped drinking and just pick up and do four times more cocaine or shift over to methamphetamine or do more hallucinogens. So I, um, you know, I found it easy to self-medicate and I understand that and then you know when I got to a point where I thought well I like being around it but I don't want to do it then I became an unlicensed pharmacist and that was a lot of fun you know I got to meet some new people and uh, you know back in my day that the DEA wasn't even involved yet they hadn't even put numbers on any of the drugs so you could walk into a Kaiser Permanente or a hospital and when the nurse turned away from the med cart they were in drawers. They weren't counted. There was no inventory. And that's what we used to do. We'd go in and just take baggies full of barbiturates and second all and, you know, anything that we could, oxys and Xanax and Valium, it didn't matter. So, you know, and I had a buddy of mine, his dad owned a pharmacy and his dad was a drunk, so he'd pass out at night. We'd 
go get the keys and he knew the alarm and we'd go in the safe. And anyway, that, that, that was then. And, you know, fast, fast forwarding through my twenties, uh, continued to work, always worked, got high a lot. And then, you know, I had a situation come up where I tried to take my own life and that was on a Friday morning. And the next day I was in rehab and that was, uh, November the 11th. Uh, 1984, and my sobriety date's the 13th because I was on prescription medication for two days. Everyone said, "Well, you gotta start your sobriety date when you're not taking medication." So, the 13th of November, and this 13th, God willing, I'll have uh, 36 years of continuous sobriety. So, I've been lucky. I've been blessed. I'm, my wife and I married two years before I stopped, so she's been with me through hell, and and she's been my angel, you know, the whole time. And I have. When I left rehab, I, I was told I should leave the family business. I was told I should get away from the stress, and I ended up going to state voc rehab, getting assessed, figuring out what I'm good at, and they told me I could be a welder at a shipyard, even though I'd spent the last 15 years um, in a women's clothing business. So I didn't know how that quite transferred over, other than the fact that I love working <laughs> with my hands. So I, you know, I answered the questions, what do you love to do? And I love working with my hands. And so anyway, I um, took the next year off and I was on state disability and trying to figure out what to do and got in the housing business. And then all of a sudden crack cocaine hit the streets and, oh, it was just, you know, the war was on. This is way before, you know, cell phones, people had pagers and going to the phone booths and drive-by shootings and the violence was up and the turf distribution. This is San Diego, one of America's finest cities, but it was blowing up. And people were, you know, the wrong place at the wrong time. And I remember the first drive-by shooting, exactly where that intersection was. So got in the housing business in the 80s. And, you know, I started doing this thing called drug and gang eradication. I don't talk much about it, but it's actually in my book. And what I would do is I'd go into apartment complexes and I would uh, identify the distributors, since I used to be one, because I know how it works. And I would knock on their door, you know, hello, it's me, Scott. Who is it? Scott, I'm the uh, working for the management company. What do you want? I said, uh, I'd like to talk to you for a second. The guy would come out and he, I go, look, you have to stop selling crack. He goes, what? I said, you got to, you got to stop selling drugs here. He goes, who are you? I said, I work for the management company. And the management company is, uh, you know, was, was hired me because the bank wants to get paid. And right now all of the tenants here are consuming your product and they're not paying the rent. He goes, true, true story, Jean. And I'm looking this guy in the eye, you know, and you can hear some of the back room, that clicking sound, you know, of a shotgun getting loaded. And he says, are you crazy? I said, no, I told you I'm working for the management company and I'm here to ask you to please stop selling drugs. He goes, you got to be freaking out of your mind coming down to this neighborhood. I said, no, I went to school up the street. This is my neighborhood. Anyway, so a day or two go by, and I go back and visit the guy, and we chat, and he goes, look, you're going to end up getting killed. I said, no, I've been here for two days. He goes, where have you been? I said, haven't you noticed how your business slowed down? He goes, what did you have to do with that? I said, see over there? He comes out of his apartment. I said, that's my little chair. That's my little ice chest, and that's my little thermos. That's where I'm smoking cigars and drinking my Dr. Pepper, and uh, I'm chilling. He goes, I, are you strapped? I go, yeah. Aren't you? Aren't we all? <laughs> so anyway, he, I said, look, this is called Operation Interruptus, and you're going to have to stop selling drugs. He goes, are you? He, he's looking at me like I'm nuts. 
And I, he goes, are you part of the popo? I said, no, I'm just a private guy working for the management company. Why do you make me keep repeating myself? I've got a wife. I'm not going to listen to you like this anymore. You have a week. Get your stuff together <laughs> and find a way to get off the property. He goes, what are you going to do about it? I said, I'm going to stay right down there by the main gate, and your consumer is not going to want to rock around me because they don't know who I am. So, but by the way, don't move across the street because I just got hired by that complex to do, the same, <laughs> to do the same thing. So I literally would eradicate, you know, 40, 50 unit apartment buildings simply by being persistent and letting them know. I said, look, I'm not here to put you in jail. I don't want you to go to prison. I'm not going to have you arrested. I said, you get stuck on stoop, but that's on you. But I need to get this property back to the management company so the management company can negotiate a deal with the bank or the bank's going to come take it and everyone here is going to get evicted. And since they're not paying rent anyway, yeah. maybe it makes sense to move on. And I said, whatever you're selling, and you and I both know what that is, you can do it anywhere. You don't, you just can't do it here anymore. you got a week. And then, you know, six days that go by, I go back and check in. He had packed up. I brought him a couple cases of beer and said, look, this is your goodbye party. You have 24 hours. And you know what? Nine out of ten times they'd move. And that I did that for about eight years. That's where I learned some of my customer service skills. <laughs> well, yeah, because if you have and, to remove and, them, that then that's going to be a whole other situation where the cops got to get called. And well, they don't. They don't want to. You know, it's interesting. I found that nobody wanted that kind of attention. And you know, during those days, that you know, people were getting. Jack, they were getting put away. So, and, and most everybody was sitting heavy. I mean, yeah, the cash would be in one unit, the drugs would be in another. But, you know, if the, if the undercover agents were there, the gang task force or the DEA, they would have enough, you know, evidence that they could move on. I mean, it just took them longer to get the paperwork. What I said to them is, look, why don't you beat the system and just move on? Because I'm going to follow you anyway. But at least this way, they have to find, you know, legally file for a new address. You push everything back 60, 90 days, whatever it was. So, you know, I wasn't trying to beat the system. I was just trying to do my job. And there were people who were addicted. And, you know, I took them to meetings. I gave them, you know, lists for you know, different anonymous meetings if they wanted help. And what I wanted to be is a resource for the community. So I got a pretty good reputation after about a year. And I kept busy with that literally for almost eight years. And then, you know, got to a point where I'm going to work with, you know, body armor and, strapped with three different weapons on me and you know, all legal. And I just, you know, my wife says, maybe it's time that you try to do something else. So, you know, that's how I kind of got into the nonprofit business is uh, started working at a shelter, feeding people. And I loved it. And after about six months, I went to the head of volunteers and said, can I help some of these people get jobs? Do you mind? And they said, no, we don't mind. How are you going to do that? I said, well, I'm going to meet with some of the social service providers I've met while I've been here serving food and talk with them. And I talk with them and they said, look, Scott, if you get our clients, their, their clients jobs, what are we going to do? I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> no, if you if you get our clients jobs, our, our case managers will be out of work. The, ex the executive directors will be out of work. You know, the clinicians will be out of work. I said, how is that possible? I think at the time we had like 5,000 homeless people in San Diego. We're over north of 8,000 now in 2020. And I, I got so upset with this meeting that that night I went home. I had a really bad case of the uppets and said, I'm going to start a nonprofit. Went to the library the next day, opened up a book. And that's how I got motivated to start Second Chance, a program about that giving people a second chance and and took a couple of years i didn't know anything about fundraising i knew nothing about nonprofits. I had to create a board 
So everything that you're about to do, Sean, I mean, I've, uh, you know, we'll get you some funding and hire me as your consultant and we'll get you a bigger place to live in. So, you know, when I come up, I can stay with you. <laughs> right. And, on. you know, and I, you know, I just love doing it. And people started referring people to me, but the people that wouldn't want to, didn't want to work with me before, all they would give me was the challenges. And I, I didn't care. Didn't matter to me. The lot, the bigger the gap in someone's employment history. Okay. The, the, the more difficult resume they had to, to reveal to me, I saw as a challenge and I didn't see this hard because most people that I, I met who'd struggled had this resilience of survival, which to me was a tool that we would create a way to craft energy into the interview. And more importantly, find them something that they were passionate about so they could use whatever in their personality really helped them hook to that train. So that's, you know, that's kind of the story. And then I left that organization about 10 years ago after 18 years and wanted to do something different. Now I'm in the substance abuse treatment business, which is something that never was on my radar before. And, you know, just being in the rooms of recovery for so long, I, I got tired of going to funerals. So I thought maybe I could do a better job and started out actually serving first responders, which is interesting because those are all the people who used to arrest my old clients. So that's my story and, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, well, a lot of times people don't understand that, you know, the, 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 the prison guards, the police officers, the, uh, they're all doing time too. And they have to be around the same things that you do. And, you know, sometimes in order for them to be able to get through some of the stuff that they have to see or, you know, Maybe they didn't want to take that, that single mother away from her, her kids and, you know, but their job says that they had to do it. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, it can't be oh. easy, irregardless of, of how you may feel about somebody. You know what I mean? When you're, when you're having to be forced with that, that, uh, emotional situation where, where you're having to rip a child away from his mother, you know, out of her arms and separate them. Dude, that's gotta be, that's gotta be hard, man. No, it is hard. And it's interesting because the average right now in our country, and, and this is what coming, comes from being an SME, a subject matter expert. I've got a lot of this data because I appear on television locally every couple of weeks or months or so talking about whatever's topical around the issues of substance abuse, addiction, distribution, because we're in San Diego, obviously a border town. Mm -hmm. But 15% of the country has an active addiction issue that will erupt this year, in a year. 15%. Uh, in law enforcement, okay, first responders, it's north of 25%. Mm. And this is all self-disclosed. It's, it's studied and it's data that's out there. And the only ones who have a higher percentage are lawyers who are 30% um, uh, claim, self-proclaimed, that 30% of lawyers across the country suffer from alcohol abuse. And that's just what they disclose. So you know if that's just what they disclosed, there's probably a couple of other issues in there that uh, they're not disclosing. But, you know, it's a big issue. And, and something that I've learned about four years ago, because I've done a lot of information gathering, and a lot of it's just there isn't a lot because, you know, who, who keeps track of it? Treatment centers don't want to. That over, of the 15% that are impaired, okay, that leave the house each day, each one of them, us, me, would negatively impact seven people every day, every day. So think about that. So that means the other 70% of the population were impacted negatively by the 15%, which means 85% of our country uh, has some sort of negative impact on a daily basis from people who are suffering. And 
you and I haven't even talked about the mental health side, the untreated trauma and the trauma that people suffer, you know, and, and you know, it's interesting. You just said something that caught my ear that I I've heard it. And it's been a long time that those who work with people who are incarcerated in a sense are incarcerated as well. The difference is they get to leave it. They get to leave at night, but processing what they've done throughout the day, they generally don't bring home to their family which means they're internalizing it. And and if they're not self-medicating or they're not working hard on their own personal self-care in some ways, um, because they have a choice, processing can be more difficult. Where somebody who's incarcerated, you know, once you're in there, I don't have to tell you this, you know, you you don't have a choice. You find a way to adapt Mm -hmm. and you do whatever you can to survive. And so in, in reality, if you think about it, if you were to compare the two populations, um, not that an inmate has it better, but they they probably have a heightened awareness of what they need to do each day to survive more effectively. So I would tap into those skill sets. And our placement rate, working with people with history, um, we used to call it people who had non-traditional working paths, that for every 50 people that started, 25 would graduate. But the 25 that graduated, over 80% of them would get a job. And of the 80% that got a job, 80% of those would still be working a year later. And that's a phenomenal outcome when you think about who we're talking about. So, you know, it's excited for me to talk about it again because I've kind of been out of that field for a while, but I just got approached recently asking if I'd be interested in looking at something uh, around working with people coming out of jail and prison. Because now they're, because of what's going on with COVID, they're just, you know, they're dumping you know, misdemeanor arrests, people who are inside of a year, and they're also letting go of uh, some of the seniors because they're too expensive to manage in prison. So, uh, and there are some, what was the state recently on the news, uh, said they're going to close all their jails and prisons. That's a little scary. And in, in there our, are some. In California? Some no, it wasn't California. It was another, um, I don't know, I want to say Portland, were they talking about it or Seattle? I don't know where it was. Don't quote me, but somebody said that they're just, they're going to get rid of, they're going to close their jails. And I, you know, huh. it was all over the news. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with all obviously this big movement lately and all these, um, you know, unfortunate deaths that have been taking place with aggressive first responders who, you know, for some reason or another end up killing somebody and it's not justified even though they're highly trained, but you know, they're human beings and you, you have these stress levels. So, so I, you know, I can't even imagine that because there are, as you know, there's probably people who should never get out. And um, there's some people that probably should never been a wandering around the planet, but they do. Well, I'm, I'm actually, uh, it's funny that you, you, you mentioned that is that I'm working on uh, a bunch of that right now when I was just talking to uh, when, I was late to this, uh, this, this interview because I was talking to a, a woman who's, uh, serving time in, a, a federal, uh, women's institution on a conspiracy, methamphetamine conspiracy to possess and distribute methamphetamine out of the Northern District of Texas. And there's a particular judge there, John McBride, who is everything that I've read about him. The, the, the one word that keeps coming up is a tyrant. Uh, in his in his reviews as a judge, right? He's had some trouble with the Fifth District uh, Court of Appeals when he was down there. He has a disciplinary record there, and so he came up here. And I think if I if I read right, he was appointed by Trump when Trump first got in, right? To to this, so I, I could be wrong though. Um, and so, anyways, there's like 
when when this book came out, it was called the uh, Burden of Proof, and it was a guy who took an interest in this. And uh, you know, I've I've in, I've interviewed uh, one girl so far who got four hundred months uh, for just being a drug addict. It got sucked up into this indictment, which is on a conspiracy. You can't fight that. And literally all of the amounts of drugs were really somebody just saying that's trying to get a downward departure in time. I sold to that person X amount of times, and that's what they used to get the uh, the amounts of drugs. So there was never any actual drugs, just somebody saying something, and then they going, okay, well, you sold to them, what, twice a week for a year? And then they go, okay, well, that amount twice a week times a year, and that's what they would make their, their charges as. They call that extrapolating data. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like this is crazy, and it's not yeah. just—it's not just one or two people. It's in this northern district. It—it—it it, it was 150 plus when he started doing this, and it's got to be up to like 600 now that they're just keep tying people into the same conspiracy, and it's no different than like low-level drug addicts just doing their daily thing, trying to figure out how to get their next fix, right? Oh, yeah, and, and, and they call that conspiracy. And That's it. So, somebody must have found a workaround with the law. And then, and then they probably even went back to some old cases and said, you know, we, we gave you, you had three to five, you got three, you're getting out in a year. Guess what? We're just, we're going to redo this and you're going to be, uh, your sentence going to be extended. I could see somebody who's a knucklehead that doesn't, with the idea that thinking is, well, if they don't get out, we won't have the problem as if the problem is going to go away. Yeah. And so they were just, they've given, they were giving people like, 20 30 40 some guy people even got life and these these people that proffered on them that that cooperated you know this that turned evidence against them a lot of them said have come out publicly and said hey and they've gotten out and it's like well i guess i told on them but i said it was 71 grams or 71 ounces or 50 whatever the the kit what it was and they've just inflated it into you know whatever it is so these people they when they were, uh, and I, and I'll, like I said, tonight it will be the, uh, the author of those, uh, those deals. I'll be putting that on tonight at 6 PM on my Facebook live and YouTube live. Uh, and they didn't want to be on, on camera. So it, it'll just be me kind of going through, uh, and, and them, but yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I'm kind of going to dive into that a little bit more. And then that's another reason why I wanted to start the reentry as somebody who did reenter, uh, when I came out, I, I had nothing but the clothes on my back, right? I had to start over 100% completely. By the way, that was the second time that I'd started at zero. I'd started at zero three times in my life, uh, where I'd lost everything, you know, and it wasn't because of anybody else other than me. I'm the one that caused all the problems and, and was the one who was responsible for that. But still coming out of that, I mean, you still have to go through it, right? And, uh, it took years. And I'm, and I'm not your typical, uh, person. I'm not in recovery. Um, I did not go that route. I started that route. I just didn't in the, in the area that I was in, it was more to me like a, uh, you know, the rooms can be clicky and they can be high schoolish and they can be, you know, uh, you know, uncomfortable to a certain extent sometimes. And I just didn't, when I was going, Sean, Sean it, it, it's okay. Not to be in recovery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, and it just didn't work for me, right? And not everybody, not every needs. Look, it's only fifteen percent, so you're part of the eighty-five. Just don't mess it up and co corrupt the data by coming around. Look, I, I have this disease. Okay, I suffer from it. It's a, it's a. I look at it as a disease. Most of science does. 
And it's just something that happened to me. But, you know, it's like some people have diabetes. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. And the funny thing is all the things that I've done, I should have. I'm 66. You know, I should have all this stuff. And I used to weigh 330 pounds. So I've been through most things that, you know, and I've been lucky knock on wood because, you know, it's in my family, but I haven't had any diabetes. I don't have any issues. Um, and I don't take any medication, sometimes something for anxiety, but, you know, under a doctor's care. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of people that don't have it. It's funny, too, because people who take the position, you know, um, that they're addicted, uh, believe that everybody else is, and they're just, they're, they're walking around untreated. So, you know, it's interesting because I've been in the rooms a long time, but I also know one size doesn't fit all. And I also know that the people who live with the addict, in some ways, are in worse shape than the addict because they've been living around it. Post-traumatic stress, all the science around that says if, you know, if you and I were roommates and you had just come back from the war and you were a veteran and you and I were living together and you had PTSD that was untreated, just the fact that I lived with you, I would get it over time because your issue was going untreated. Like diabetes, if you and I were living together and I had diabetes and I wasn't getting it treated correctly – if you were a good friend, you'd be my caregiver full time. And all I really need to do is get to the doctor, get a diagnosis and start checking my blood sugar level and taking insulin. And then I could live a normal life. So to me, it's not a it's not a handicap. It's just it's a disease. I mean, like cancer, like heart disease. I mean, uh, hair loss at early, early age is not a disease, but it happens to some people. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was more it, it was more or less learning what I could mess with and what I couldn't mess with. Right. So right. meth, I couldn't mess with that because it, it definitely, I couldn't, I, I, you know, it ruined my life. It, every time that I tried to go back to it and try it a different way, it game over. Um, uh, opiates. I had a seven, seven year opiate addiction after that. It, when I changed my life and did everything right. And so I could still function on that, but, I was like, you know what? I, if I'm going to be getting into this space and, and start helping people and all that stuff, then I need to not be on any of those, those types of things. Right. And so I stopped doing that. I just kind of weaned myself off using, uh, uh, edibles. And that's pretty much the only thing that I take now is, uh, I'll take edibles, uh, for pain every now and again, or if I want, you yeah. know, just to relax. Uh, sometimes I'll just take a little bit as like a microdose and it's, you know, the same pe- thing that people would use, uh, Prozac for or, you know, Zoloft or anything else. I think, I think small doses of marijuana and psilocybin have the same effect. Yeah, and I just, when I hear that from people like you, I just get pissed because I get jealous because I wish I could. But I know that if I started, I would open up Pandora's box. By the way, there's a great saying that Robert Downey Jr. has been quoted saying, goes, every time I did cocaine, I broke out in handcuffs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that one's been going around the rooms for a while. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> Ever since he said it. He had an allergic reaction uh, to, hand, yeah. to, to, to drugs and alcohol every time, every well, time I use it is an allergy. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Every time I do it, you know, I break out in, uh, you know, something stupid or black out. So, you know, for, for me, I mean, that's what happens. It triggers that for me. And I've, and I, I remember my friends went away from me when I went to treatment because they're like, well, wait a minute, if he's got a problem, maybe I have a problem. And, um, you know, I just, I've been doing what I need to do to take care of myself. I still stay connected to my recovery programs. I help other people and I do what I think works for me. And I've spent, you know, years talking to people about it you know um this piece that i'm doing for the newspaper this week an op-ed is talking about what's different you know and people they are stuck at home and they can't go to meetings but they can on zoom 
Mm-hmm. So, but that's different. Isolation is not good for people who suffer from issues. And if, and I've never met anybody who does a lot of drugs that doesn't have other issues like depression, anxiety, sleep deprivation, insomnia, addicted to other things. So, you know, everyone needs help sometime. Yeah. That's yeah. my attitude. Well, and, and, and this ties in a little bit with, uh, you know, people that are coming out. I mean, you have high, high level people that need mentors and, and coaches, right? Well, mm-hmm. what, what about these people that are starting so far behind the, the starting line that why wouldn't they need mentors and coaching as well? You know what I mean? As far as like how to, well, I don't, I don't even think it's a question that goes unanswered. They absolutely positively do. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I want to provide. And I already have a model that has been working, uh, from a guy, uh, out of, uh, Texas, Richard Midkiff or not Texas, uh, Florida. And they're trying to, uh, to get him back in prison. He got out on a, uh, he got out on, on a, a technicality because, uh, he, he got sentenced to 39 years as a 17 year old. They tried him as an adult, I think. And his co-defendant was the shooter, uh, and he was the getaway guy. And they were trying to rob a drug dealer, and then it, uh, a struggle ensued. The gun accidentally went off and killed the guy. Uh, he His uh, co-defendant got six months more than he did because he was the shooter. The family would wanted him to do more time, right? A law changed, and it allowed for people that were sentenced with long times as juveniles to be able to go back and review your case to see if, you know what I mean, something you could get a reduction in time or, or you know, uh, sentence served, whatever. The co-defendant ends up getting out uh, on that. Then they turned around and had to let Midkiff out because he was supposed to serve less time. So somehow there was a discrepancy and the uh, district attorney is trying to uh, get this guy put back in prison. But while he was in prison and you got to you got to check out this uh, this interview that I did on my Facebook profile um, with this guy. I mean, an exemplary model inmate started two programs, one of them, which was called the uh, the Storytime Dads, which he started a, a, a organization that funded this. So the, it didn't have any cost to the prison, didn't have any cost to the inmate, didn't have any cost to the families. And the fathers would record reading a book to their children. I know the program. I've heard of it. It's been yeah. around a while, hasn't it? Uh, yeah. He started that a while ago in uh, Florida. And so I want to take that model plus the Sage program that he's talking about. And, and he said he'd, you know, be happy to, to, let me use it um, and do it wherever I'm at. And that's basically having all of these different coaches volunteering their time, whether it's finance, uh, you know, uh, strategies and getting uh, you know, whatever it could be that you could think of and uh, just having a program and, and having them go through that. And you can do that through, uh, through zoom if you wanted to as well, because you just have that person, the professional that's giving the class wherever they're at, you know? So, well, you know, it's interesting because I, what well, you're talking about it, I used to label recidivism reduction programmatic um, uh, criteria. And what was fascinating, you know, you saw that letter I shared with you that I got from Matt Kate when he was Secretary yeah. of Corrections. The union and corrections, they didn't want people staying out. You know, it's good for business when they're, when they're when they come back. I mean, what's the last thing we'll see? You know, well, they say and they hear is, we'll see you soon. So, I actually got I got the attention of Department of Corrections because we were actually reducing recidivism. 
And, you know, basically, and once we, and, and, and we'll talk more about this if you're interested about how we showed the taxpayer donor, how by getting Johnny a job, okay, making even it was only $2,000 a month back in the 90s and 2000s versus costing the state 55000 was a huge return on investment. And once people started to get that together, but again, I was working against, you know, 33 prisons in California. They didn't, you know, 58 counties. They were so busy. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you, as you move through your path, keep this in the back of your mind. I always, when I was in a room, I, I, I learned this a long time ago. I had to find out who cared before I started spending time with them. Because when you hear these presentations, you know, and you say, well, who cares? I remember going to an event once in Denver, and this Robert Woods Johnson uh, Foundation had done this three-year study, and they wanted to understand why men coming out of prison had a shorter life. So there's 300 people in the room. I'm listening to this presentation, and I said to myself, I was invited, and they paid me to come to this conference, and I I said, don't say anything, Scott. You're going to get in trouble. So as soon as I said that to myself, I stood up and asked the question, went to the microphone. I said, can I ask a question? It's a great presentation, but who cares? <laughs> and, and the presenter said, what do you mean? I said, well, you've just spent an hour telling about this great study you did. And the, the person in front of me asked you what's going to happen next. And you said you're not funded to do any follow-up. So my question to you is, other than the people in this room, who cares about the study? And, and then she said, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. I said, what I mean is, if there's 2.3 million people incarcerated in our country, besides us, the providers here who really care, who else cares? Meaning, if this information is only shared amongst ourselves, mm-hmm. we have to find a way to get out of this silo to let the community know that everything that's being done at the level of long-term incarceration for inappropriate sentencing or around substance abuse. I said, I'm just going to use that as an example. I mean, when it comes to someone carrying a gun, comes to someone taking someone else's life or nearly killing someone else, that's a whole different ballgame because we're talking about substance abuse here. I said, we need to find out other kindred spirits who care so it doesn't just stay in this room because we will never create systemic change if we're the only ones talking about it to each other. I got a standing ovation, but then I did get reprimanded by the people that hosted me, but that's okay because hopefully, you know, I was trying to raise some awareness that if we keep doing what we've always done, we're going to get what we've always gotten. No, exactly. And I think that uh, with all the technology, the Zoom, um, the ability to be across the country, I'm getting a little bit of feedback on your on your uh, from the uh, your speaker a little bit. Oh, is that from, from my speaker on my computer? Yeah, I think so. Is that better? Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure, that's a little bit better. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a uh, you know, uh, it's just a it's a tough thing, man, and it's and it and it feels like it's almost. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know the word that I'm trying to to get for it. It's uh, like it's manufactured to to be that way, you know. 
And I don't know if it's unintended, an unintended consequence of, of what the actual mechanisms are or, or instruments are of, of, you know, incarceration. Um, you know, and that's another thing that I want to kind of take a look at too. Um, and, and sort of a, uh, a documentary thing about this conspiracy in Texas is like, when did the, uh, when did all of the uh, timelines with the the uh, when when the prison system became uh, for profit, as well as the uh, the 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 law change uh, when the crime bill was passed, as well as the you know what you mentioned the crack cocaine the CIA bringing that in uh, for the Iran Contra type stuff. Um, I think there's a correlation there, and it's all you know what I mean? Uh, meant to get all these people and thrown, throw them in prison, uh, to fill these private prisons now, right. uh, in, in this, in a city of Florence, Arizona, when I was, uh, uh, going through my, my transit from Las Vegas to, uh, Sheridan, Oregon, I stopped in Florence, uh, Arizona. And do you know that that city has nine prisons in it? The whole city is nothing but a prison town. And it has nine prisons, and everybody that lives in this city services the prison in some way, shape, or form. So, I mean, imagine how many people that is, and they were from all over the all over the country, bunch of different states, you know, contracted to house their uh, their their uh, their inmates. You know, it's it's amazing because um, you know in California, I don't know if you know this, I'm sure you might, but when they built prisons here, they basically built a prison, built a town around it. That's kind of how they identify locations for it. I mean, it's pretty mm-hmm. unusual. We have one here in San Diego close to the border. But at the end of the day, a lot of the – I'm trying to fix my headphones here. A lot of the um, prisons, like California prison, I never knew what that was. And that's where the, you know a lot of immigrants um, that are here illegally go and spend their time, and then they get bussed back across the border. Yeah, yeah. So, and 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 it's true. A lot of these, I mean, it's a huge industry. I mean, from Unicor to to whatever the state prisons, uh, you know, whatever uh, industrial work that they're doing in in the state level. Um, I mean, it's a huge industry, and they don't want to see people. Uh, I mean, it's almost like the same thing with cancer. I mean, you know, they they may have the cure, but there's no profit in the cure. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no, there's there's no profit in in keeping people out of prison um unfortunately and so it's a, it's a big you know it's still an 8 billion dollar industry here in, in California 8 billion i mean that's significant when you think about it how is that possible yeah but it is it's huge and it's just one of those things the union's still very strong but and, and to your point, there's a huge need. So, you know, and there's people in our community that are kind of ramping something up very similar to what you're talking about. And they're looking for connectivities. And they called me to um, see if I'd be willing to help. And I said, what do you mean? I said, well, we need some volunteers. I said, I'm not going to volunteer. I said, I come with too much intellectual property. And I, and I said, if I'm going to sit at the same table, the same people you're bringing in, that you told me about that we're doing this 20 years ago that created no change, I don't want to waste my time or yours. But if you really want to try to fix it, and they're talking about a mentor program, they're talking about putting people together pre-release, and so they have that that handoff. They're not talking to a complete stranger and trying to figure out a way, you know, why they're doing this, how do I do this, and they don't take advantage of each other. They they already know each other, and um, you know, I think there's there's some real tactical things that we can do. And to your point, there's some really cool new stuff 
that's uh, out there today that really can help get information on the inside, especially Zooming. And, and, you know, anything that you do, I really encourage you to film it. I'm sure you will document it because then you can blast it out and imagine having content, you know, being exposed to half a million people every week versus that are still locked down mm-hmm. and give them tools to prepare for, you know, there's, there are experts who charge a lot of money to tell people what's going to happen when they go in, but there aren't a lot of people that are teaching people what to do when they get out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's true. I mean, you, all kinds of different things, like even from starting a podcast, I mean, that's a skill, you know, teaching people how to, uh, you know, how to, um, edit and do all that kind of stuff. You know, another oh, yeah. thing, another thing I was thinking about is why wouldn't it be, why, why couldn't you like, you have all these people that are still in prison for marijuana. Right. And when you can go and buy it from a dispensary, uh, like there's one right down the street. Uh, I mean, why couldn't, why couldn't you have a nonprofit connected to, to a dispensary and you're putting these people that have been put in prison that are coming out for marijuana back into the industry where they should have been to begin with? You know what I mean? And they're, st- they're, they're business owners. They just went about it in a different way. So why well, would they just did, they didn't have to get a license and pay taxes, but they were, yeah. look, I was an unlicensed pharmacist. I was an entrepreneur. I didn't, you know, I wasn't paying taxes back in those days. And now that the statute of limitations is up, I talk about it all whenever I can. And to me, those were great skills. I call those transferable skills. Yeah. So, I mean, why, why couldn't you in, in theory, start a dispensary you know what i mean you can make the make the plants and you know what i mean have all of that stuff going on but also have it connected to the nonprofit, which is you know the dispensary itself would be would be funding all of the uh all of the um uh, whatever the salaries or or the 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 costs of it and all of the money that you get in grants would just be for uh you know mentorship and, and, and the cost that would come from, you know, getting these people in that you're going to have, you know, talk about different financing, how to, you know, compound interest and how to be on the right side of it, <laughs> which nobody ever gets taught. Um, but, you know, look, basic life skills, you know, yeah. how to go get a job, how to go back to school. You know, it, it, some people have been down for so long. We used to joke about how, you know, a mouse is not a rodent. It's actually connected to a computer. I mean, there are simple little things that it's not information that, you know, obviously it's different today the information highway but still there's a lot of restrictions of what you can get and can't get inside and i think it does put people as a disadvantage but again when you look at the i call it the the, um, philanthropic chart of distribution homelessness you know now starts to ratchet up a little bit but ex-offender re-entry it's not even on the list and when you think about what the public money requires you to do to do it you have to get creative you have to have to think out of the box i remember years ago when there was a huge shortage with law enforcement they just weren't able to recruit people the military veterans weren't coming out quick enough and, and they didn't necessarily want to go into law enforcement um and i remember approaching the sheriff who's a colleague and i just you know he was just on one of our events a week ago and we, years ago we talked about this is said, why don't we train people and, the, and he was on my board at the time, the nonprofit. Why don't we train some of the returnees to move into law enforcement? And he laughed. He goes, they'll never, you know, clear a background check. I said, well, but if how many of your people now are doing things that may not be appropriate? He goes, that's, he goes, I understand your point. You're absolutely right. But, you know, in order to get into a sworn officer position, you can't have an arrest record per se. So because I thought what a great natural individual 
that could really, you know, deal with some real life communication with some of the situations that happen in our community, homelessness, knuckleheads. I mean, obviously they'd have to be trained and they couldn't, you know, take their shiv out of their sock and stick them when they wanted to. But I thought it was an interesting idea. Uh, it didn't go too far, you know, I've, 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 I've said, I've said that same thing, um, that the best people, I mean, just like the best people to run this country are the people that help defend it, which are ex-military and the people that help yep. to build it, which are union members and, you know, people that know what it takes to build a country. You know, those are the, should be the people that are running it and the people that should be police officers or, or at least a part of some part of the, the police ing situation are ex-offenders and people who know how to communicate with that element you know what i mean that aren't going to be nervous when they walk into a situation and be so quick to like pull their gun and fire and shoot somebody you know what i mean you've been around that element you're not really worried about like me i can i can flow in and out of any situation and be anywhere that i want to be uh it helps that i'm darker complected uh but i'm i'm you know i i can very well spoken as well. You know, um, I can move it within all kinds of different, uh, areas. So I always thought that as well, but I guess the only thing that we, we can do is be be a liaison to, to the, to that. But I mean, what does that really give you, uh, an option to do, you know, only in a, in a, a serious situation, would you probably ever be called like, um, I guess, uh, so you remember the, uh, ghost ship, warehouse and everything that fell that all the the fire that killed all those people in oakland the warehouse fire so my my uh sister was a liaison it was considered a liaison and they call her on like huge things whenever there's trans individuals that are uh you know happen i guess like three trans people uh were killed in that so she was called in to be a liaison uh to the community and kind of you know give information or, or, or get information, something like that, but sort of the right. same thing, you know, a sort of liaison role. But yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. Yeah. It, it, look, there's, there's all kinds of different ways to, um, I mean, look at the situations today and it's things that are, you know, institutionalized uh, that really need to be updated and create systemic change, you know, which to me just defined as permanent change. You know, it just takes a lot of effort, a lot of education, and a lot of patience because there's, there's where there's a will, there's a way. But again, you got to find those, you know, who really cares. You got to find those kindred spirits. And, you know, unless you just do it, you know, one person at a time, which I've done as well. And, and I found that's probably the most gratifying. But when you've got something that works, it's nice to be able to scale it up so you can be an, uh, an influencer. And, you know, I'm going on this three day conference next week resume for for three days with 300 other people across the country uh, called mobilized recovery and most everybody there are going to be learning how to be uh, advocates and leaders and change agents in the community and I've been doing it for decades so and I'm just coming in as a participant because I just wanted to you know refresh reboot you know sit and listen and just be part of because uh, I'm not sure yet I'm looking forward to it and the guy that's leading it and the group are pretty powerful and they're they are change agents, and they've got the ear of some legislative leaders. But when it comes to substance abuse, addiction, prevention, you know, there aren't a lot of – there isn't a lot of conversations right now. Everything's pretty much focused on, on COVID. Now it's going to shift to the election, and then hopefully we're going to see some positive um, changes in leadership because right now it's like – it's scary times. I mean, I you know, I'm kind of glad I'm hungered down in my little clubhouse here. 
Yeah, me too. I'm I'm glad that I'm like, you know, mobile and I can just hook up anytime I want and go if I need to, you know, other than the fact that my daughter is uh I have to be close to her. I don't want to go too far away from her, but I mean, you know, if depending on what happens, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that are making an exodus right out of uh, California and New York right now as well. Uh both of these both of these uh states are are a lot of people are leaving. You know, so who knows, man? Uh, crazy times. So, anyways, why don't you go ahead and uh, we're about fifty-four minutes right now. So, why don't you go ahead and uh, plug any of your stuff that you uh, sure. that you want to uh, uh, plug? <laughs> Got it. Anyway, uh, well, this is Scott H. Silverman. You can Google me anywhere. Here's my direct phone number: area code six one nine. 993-2738, area code 619-993-2738. As a crisis coach and a family navigator, uh, I really encourage people, call me or text me, and let's find a way to keep the conversation going. You know, Google me, look me up, text me, poke me, instant message me. I'm all over social media, and I hope to talk with some of you, if not all of you, one day. And I want to thank you, Sean, for the opportunity to have a great conversation today and i gave you that contact info you've got mine but anything i can do to help support you in your journey uh i'm here to do that awesome that's uh that, that's uh, that's great to hear and uh you will be hearing from me because we I, sounds I'm, like I'm, a threat yeah sounds like a threat i like it I, I i'm gonna need some uh some guidance on this uh on this deal i've got a uh an attorney that's helping me process everything and do all of the paperwork that's uh pro bono so i'm just yep. you know just little bits and pieces keep coming from here and there and at some point it'll end up where it needs to be so uh hang out for just a second and uh as soon as we uh, uh get off of this I appreciate everything. I appreciate your time. And uh, thanks to Steve Joyner for making this connection. And uh, we'll be talking again at some point soon. So take care. You too. You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.